It's so difficult. I mean, look, I'm a founder who's hopeful that we can change things and I want to encourage people to have hope. The risks that they take and the sort of passion they have to drive forward change at like super top level, you know, governments, companies, people, they're unafraid and they're completely independent. I know that I'm doing everything I can to not only solve a problem, but also to just help like so many people change their lives. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. And we talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off, and when they didn't. And on this episode, we are blessed to be joined by the one and only Thomas Panton. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, bro. Really appreciate it. So, Big Risk Energy, I feel like there are a hundred different things that I could discuss with you. Um, obviously, everyone knows that you're a founder of a really exciting company called Canopy, which are... Canopy? Canopy? Canopy, yeah. Canopy, I, know, crazy. We, it whatever. we cleared it two <laughs> seconds ago and I got it wrong, um, which I invested in back in December last year, yeah, I want to say. December. Um, and obviously, one of the reasons... Well, the, the only reason that I invest in the company, um, because there are so... Obviously, I, I totally uh, believe in the mission, but there are obviously lots of companies trying to solve this mission in different ways. But I really believe in you because of your background, the things that you've done, the risks that you've taken, and how purpose and mission-driven you've been in your own life. So there are so many things that we could jump into around that. Um, but tell me about Greenpeace, because I think yeah. that was the thing which initially, when I when I saw you know your background at Greenpeace, I was like, right, this guy is going to live and die to solve this problem, you know, one way or another. So tell us about that. But yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, I think that, you know, my career really started at Greenpeace, um, but it wasn't really where I started my journey as a, probably as a founder. Um, I was actually a international swimmer before I went to Greenpeace and um, had always thought that I was going to do that and had never intentionally thought about doing anything else. Wow. So um, as in you always thought you were going to be a, a swimmer full time? Get sponsored, go to the Olympics, you know, do that whole thing. <laughs> wow. Um, and that had always been the plan from the age of sort of eight, uh, through my teenage years, through school. And then I got injured um, and that led to multiple different things, like very toxic culture around high level sport. So I did, you know, saw all my friends going to uni and was like, well, I haven't really thought about going to uni, but maybe I should. And sort of was like, okay, I'll run my hand down a list. I'll pick a subject that sounds interesting and I'll go. So I went and did um, politics and international relations at the University of East Anglia and met someone who was working for Greenpeace. And obviously I was learning so much about like global powers and like relations and obviously climate change was a part of that. And I come from a sort of like climate conscious family. And so I, you know, it was in my sort of scope, but as I said, never really part of the like plan. And then speaking to this person who was working there and the work that Greenpeace were doing and learning more about it, it was sort of inevitable that I was gonna go and get a job there as well. So it's exactly what I did. Just went and, you know, started as a foot soldier fundraiser. Mm -hmm. You know, you probably have met some of us on the streets or Absolutely. at the doors. And um, it's the hardest but most rewarding job. You learn everything about all campaigns. And mm. then you have to go and try and relay that to real people and understand, like, what their thoughts around that are. Um, very similar to being a founder and trying to work out what your consumer problem is and mm. then, like, fixing it. Um, and that's exactly what I was doing at Greenpeace to begin with. Um, but really, the you know, you touched on it like the real thing that really drove me there was the risks that they take and the sort of passion they have to drive forward change at like super top level you know governments companies people 
they're unafraid and they're completely independent. So they've got no one telling them they can't do that. Mm. And they will find the things which are wrong and they will call them out and try and change them. And I love that. And I just wanted to be involved. And I think as soon as I was in that, it was like inevitable that was going to be the rest of sort of my focus and career from there onwards. Yeah, and I think it sets up in a really interesting way because obviously I want to say from like a legal perspective, Greenpeace and people involved with Greenpeace take massive risks, right? Um, it sets you up in a way of saying, I'm all in on solving this problem regardless of, of potential negative consequences, right? I mean, look, it's the scale of the problem that you're talking about. You know, we are talking about a crisis which affects every single person. Um, my co-founder Hugo likes to say it affects everyone other than the seven people in the International Space Station. Yeah. Um, but inevitably it will affect them too when they come back down. Because of that, you just put everything on the table and you just go, look, if we're going to solve this problem, you can't be afraid to take risk. Like It's different as well though, right? Like Individuals have different risk sort of appetite. Sure, We see that every time, and yeah. particularly as founders. Um, and I think that... For Greenpeace and organizations like Greenpeace, that, that risk appetite is higher because we're more willing to put ourselves on the line to solve a bigger problem. I would say that there's a difference between Greenpeace and a lot of other organizations. You'll see that a lot of sort of newer activist organizations are very targeted at disrupting society in general, um, for better or worse. And it, you know, has brought the conversation, you know, very forefront, not always positively. Whereas Greenpeace are sort of lobbed in with that, but they are quite different. They don't target people. They target organizations, companies. They don't disrupt you, you know, people getting to work or ambulances. They go and actually change big companies. And the other thing that 98% of, you know, the work that's not seen is sitting around a table and providing solutions to those companies, mm -hmm. not just saying you're the bad guy, change it, but actually going, you're the bad guy, sure. But like, let's make a change and let's work together to make sure that you're the good guy. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Solutions over just like doom. And I think that if you're going to sort of put everything on the line, don't just do it to for nothing. You know, there's got to be an end goal. And for me, it, that's what I really found very attractive about working for an organization like Greenpeace was that we were always focused on a solution. We weren't just focused on the problem. It was, how do we solve that problem? So when you see like the Just Stop Oil, right? Yeah. Uh, Just Stop Oil protesters. Now it's funny because obviously there is uh, a lot of anger, a lot of animosity towards those people. Yep. Although I think anyone who can't um, empathize with those people's feelings of helplessness and just the desire to do something, I think is pretty insane to yeah, not, 100%. Um, not not at least see where they're coming from and realize um, that there there is nothing but good intention Absolutely. for the most part obviously you know you're always going to get spoilers and everything else of course and some people who just want to you know create a nuisance in in every part of life but also you need all of these things like we're like i say we're solving a global problem which is already drastically changing the way we live as, as a species and many other species and i think that you can't just expect Greenpeace's work to change everything. You can't just expect entrepreneurs work to change everything you can't just expect government to change everything you need the people, you know, putting everything on the line mm. and like really just like they don't care like whether they disenfranchise 10% of the population. Mm. They What they want is to raise the awareness of the problem and make sure that people are talking about it positively or negatively mm. because then it's being talked about and then those solutions are more likely to come to the table. So I think the work they're doing is great. I just think that you need more than that. And yeah, 100%. And, and I, think it, um, I think if their goal is to try and create urgency 
in awareness, then it, then it is working on that side of things. But that's why I think um, the huge increase in impact-driven business and mission-driven businesses, I think, is a, a really important part solving that puzzle because it's about giving these young, hungry, driven people uh, realistically the commercial solutions that are needed for a commercial world, right? Now, I want to go on a slight tangent, as we <laughs> always do. Um, obviously, I love what you guys are doing. I think giving uh, consumers the ability to consume more sustainably and ethically is amazing. And I know from my own perspective, whether it's been nutrition, whether it's been ingredients, whether it's been um, consumer goods, there's always that problem around, well, how do I actually know where things are coming from? And I think there's a lot of, of mistrust there. So two part question. One is, you know, tell us about your approach to dispelling all of those myths and helping people consume more ethically. The second part is, how much of an impact can consumer behavior have in an environment where, you know, I wanna, I'm gonna pull this out of my ass, but 80 plus percent of emissions are coming from 20% of companies which yeah. are not gonna, you know, and, and how, how do you look at yeah, those two parts? Yeah. I'll start with the first bit, because I think that's the easiest question. <laughs> uh, you, you know, ultimately, we are a species of convenience and accessibility. Everything we've ever innovated across the history of humanity has been about making things easier for us. And that's okay. Like I, I genuinely think that that is absolutely fine for us to do. The difficulty has been that over the history of, of that innovation is that we haven't considered the impacts that that has externally. Um, so we're in a position now where we need to like solve those problems, but we can't stop innovating. We can't expect people to just go back to living in a way which they don't want to or that makes their lives much harder um, because we've given the convenience already. Once you've given convenience, very, very hard to take that away from someone. Mm -hmm. So my big thing here, and, and I'm extremely bullish about it, is that if we're going to solve the climate crisis in any form, whether it's consumerism or you know b2b sort of emission tracking or whatever it is, it needs to tie sustainability with convenience. And for us, that means that you can't then just add another... Um, another sort of side solution to an already fragmented market. You know, you've got learning platforms, you've got verification platforms, you've got shopping platforms, which claim to be ethical, but aren't always. You've got impact calculators. They're all different platforms. They're all different user journeys. It's really fucking hard to try mm. and do that. And I think that even as someone who's worked in the climate sector for my whole career, I've studied climate science. I, you know, I'm around some of the leading voices and minds of this sector I find that too difficult. Mm. So if I find that too difficult, then I am going to make the assumption and then obviously we've backed that up with actually speaking to people that most other people... I have no chance. Yeah, I've got right? zero chance of understanding that. Yeah. So like for me, it's like, okay, well, how do we solve that then? Like you can't expect them to go to multiple platforms. You can't expect them to take multiple user journeys to spend the time of the day to research and learn and, and then eventually shop and then hopefully it's green and, you know, all of this stuff. So just like removing those barriers streamlining the user journey and giving back proper trust are the three things that we focus on so when we were building canopy it was always about how can we bring all of those four different things learning verifying shopping and in and tracking your impact into one platform one user journey one mission with lots of trust so that's what we built and, and i think that if we're going to try and sort of dispel these like uh, stereotypes of what ethical consumerism is you've got to not 
make barriers for people to adopt it particularly when you think about the price of products or the you know there's already things which are fundamentally going to be challenged like and challenges within the within that industry so why make it even harder for yourself by asking consumers to do even more than that yeah you know that's the thing which can't change so then everything around that we can make easier Mm. so that's what we're focused on i think the other side of this is and it leads really nicely into your second point is that consumers are what businesses run on businesses are set up to serve those people even if you don't directly interact with them you can be pretty damn sure that at some point in your life that business has touched your Mm -hmm. work particularly the biggest businesses in the world Mm -hmm. they are everywhere in the background who are we talking about to make this easier when we talk about these businesses what type of companies we're talking we're talking energy companies we're Mm -hmm. talking big consumer brands unilever coca-cola pepsi you know we're talking about transport companies british airways you know we're talking literally anything you do you're going to be interacting with one of those companies somewhere like it by being human mm-hmm. um it, it, it's impossible not to those companies and and the companies that surround them particularly energy companies and particularly sort of the uh, sectors that they serve which is everything <laughs> um then how as a consumer can we change that well you can change that by supporting companies which are changing that status quo mm-hmm. and you might not seem like much as an individual you know you make one swap sustainable swap like what you know what difference does that have compared to Coca-Cola producing 100 billion single-use plastic mm-hmm. bottles every year. Like, you know, it's nothing. But when billions of people make that same swap or change, you're not only moving away from the organisation that's, you know, and, and hopefully they then see that change, mm-hmm. but also you're supporting a different company which is doing better. Mm. And by doing that, you're growing a new type of big business eventually, which is built on the foundations of being more ethical or being more sustainable. So I'm not saying that by doing this, we as individuals change our, you know, as an individual, you change the impact of the world. I'm saying that if you provide a solution uh, which they can easily swap over to, which gives them the same convenience but less impact, then by doing that, you're not only encouraging change of those initial big companies in the background, but you're also supporting the next big businesses which will make the change. I mean, a really good example of this is Octopus Energy in the Mm -hmm. UK, right? Like they have made an energy company which is running on renewable energy. They're obviously not the only one, um, but they're probably the biggest now. And I think that it's as easy to be with them as it is to choose British gas. For sure, yeah. In fact, it's cheaper in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And you're going to get better customer service for sure. (laughs) And I think that... Do you want to give the referral code now? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big, you know, I'm selling, uh, listen to me. (laughs) Uh, No, but the point is, is this is a really good example of an industry which is the industry behind everything, you know, the energy industry. And there are companies already providing convenience with sustainability Mm. in there so that you as a consumer, all you have to do is switch your energy company. Yeah. And you're having an impact, but you're also supporting a company which is going to change that. And that's going to pressure. I mean, we see it, right? Shell, BP, these Mm. big oil companies are now starting to invest in renewables because they understand that's where the market's going. They understand they need to. Although whether the shareholders agree with that, that's a different question. Mm. And I think this is the fundamental point is that We provide the ability for consumers to access goods or whatever it is um, in in a really convenient way. And then that supports better business and it encourages the previous bad boys to change over time. Uh, and that's how we solve the problem. I think it's a really good one. Uh, Octopus Energy is, is a great example there. Because I was thinking, wait, you know, when you were speaking previously, you know, how, how does that impact the world of, of transport? And when you've got, because, I mean, can you get to a point where 
you know, the, these companies that we want to support so that they become big companies from an infrastructure supply chain perspective, it's then going to always come back down to what's the, you know, modes underpinning the way that we consume these goods. But you're right, when you do have energy companies challenging the status quo in that way, then you could, um, you know, foresee. I, I was reading recently um, Cargo Zero, mm. see, mm -hmm. a really, really interesting startup. Um, they're, they're a few years old now, but raised like, best part of a billion to build these um, totally electric cargo ships. And I think they're just getting the first products into market now. And it's, it's, it is exciting to see that. One question I have, and this may be totally impossible for you to tell me the answer to is let's try. From a, let's call it a critical path analysis, yep. catastrophic environmental failure. Yeah. Right, working back to where we are now. Yeah. How quickly do these changes need to happen, and where and and you know where is the point of no return, and how far are we away from this catastrophic failure? Um, okay. Great to get your view on this. It's so difficult. I mean, look, I'm a founder who's hopeful that we can change things, and I want to encourage people to have hope. Uh, but I'm also someone who's studied the science around it, and I've seen the changes that are happening already. Um, I think that. Look, I think that doom scrolling, uh, you know, on Instagram and seeing all of this crisis uh, talk is is important for awareness, but it doesn't really help in solving the problem. So I think I just start there. I think from a scientific perspective, we should have made these changes 50 years ago. We, I mean, ideally, we would never have polluted the planet. But, sure. you know, let's talk realistically. You know, when we first started having this brought to the public eye and uh, scientists were starting to tell people that, you know, we, we really need to fundamentally change the way we're working and in industry that's when we should have made those changes, right then. Mm -hmm. uh, it was already too late right then, right? Um, in 2015, you know, governments came together and agreed in Paris to limit, you know, temperatures from going up against uh, up to 1.5 degrees. But forget it, we've already gone past that. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, There's no point in having that discussion because it's something that we literally cannot do now. So what, what then, right? Like, you know, you can go down that route of there's, we haven't seen a massive dip in emissions going out. We are going past multiple tipping points um, as those things trigger melting of ice caps or whatever it is, that's going to trigger even more extreme temperature rise and that's going to have knock-on effects again and it gets into a bit of a spiral. So it's quite easy to not be hopeful in that. And you then you go back to like Just Stop Oil, right? Mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion and you go, oh, I get it. Like, you know, once you've looked at this stuff, like it's pretty hard not to be quite panicked about it. I think the flip side of all of that is that change is happening. Maybe not as fast as we need it to. Sure, whatever. But it is happening and people are driving it and mm -hmm. people are trying to. And as individuals, we have a choice and it's quite an easy choice. It's going, do we just go fuck it and do nothing? And that is not just for the entrepreneurs, politicians, uh, you know, whoever it is. It's for the, the individual who has their nine to five, lives their life. They could go fuck it and do nothing. And that's Haven't not, they? Well, uh, many have, but I think that, I think fundamentally is that humans come together in times of crisis. We've mm. seen it time and time again. And this is a monumental crisis. Like, you know, it's not a climate crisis. It's a planetary crisis. All of the planetary boundaries are sort of a threat. But... As I say, there are solutions being built. We spoke about Octopus Energy, Canopy in terms of shopping. You know, there's uh, transport companies. You know, Uber now gives you the first option is to get an electric ride. Mm -hmm. Like, There are things happening. There are things changing. And I think that, you know, it's a long way around of asking your question, but answering your question. But I think that if we as individuals make that choice, whenever it is, in the supermarket, on the online shop, when you're getting a transport, and we try and 
justify why we're doing that and rationalize it and we're not rational consumers but we try to mm -hmm. then i think that we are more likely to be able to save most of the people on the planet um and i think that that is likely to be possible uh you know in the next sort of few decades okay all right i mean that's yeah. that's that's i will take we'll, we'll let's go there that. because yeah, yeah, otherwise yeah. we can go down 100 100 everything that's happening and <laughs> yeah of course of course and it, it brings me to a question that i wanted to ask you which is talk about doom scrolling talk yep. about that feeling of you know impending doom i think you could uh almost liken that to the life of a, an entrepreneur and a founder right it's that that watching the runway drive down as you're trying to make uh, make yeah. things happen right so there's a, a big mental health element to it yeah. one of the things that i find hilarious in a really depressing way by the way i get um on my spotify i get this advert from i want to say it's from shell and it's their um, their climate anxiety meditation series, and it's like, yeah, when 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 you stress out about the environment, you're less likely to do something. Why don't you forget about it and just meditate? I'm like, that is amazing. Literally, just them pitching me yeah. to do nothing yeah. about it, um, which I was like, ballsy move. Um, but let's talk about that that mental health journey. You mentioned doom scrolling before, and I'm interested to know a bit about your mental health journey as well, and, and how it all ties in with this. Yeah, I think that climate anxiety is a very real thing, as anxiety is generally. Um, I think that, you know, for years, that's sort of like an unsaid, uh, an unsaid sort of like thing in people's minds, mental health, whatever it is, you know, for many generations, we didn't talk about mental health. And even growing up, like, you know, in school, that wasn't really a thing. And the people who, who talked about their mental health were like the weirdos, right? Like, but now we're seeing a definite shift away from and you know people are more open about it there's more conversation about it and that just includes climate anxiety or, or you know fear and i think that the more we talk about that with with a positive recourse like you know not just going oh, you're really sad i'm really sad let's both be sad and let's get into this pit of sadness like that doesn't help anyone it never has helped anyone mm -hmm. and, you know in ignoring whatever that anxiety is coming from if you're depressed you're anxious, you're, you know, whatever it is, and you go and sit with someone who's also depressed and also anxious. And instead of you guys talking productively about it, you end up just like spiraling into your own depression. It's the worst possible thing you can do mm. for, for literally anyone. So I think that the climate movement and the climate sort of like anxiety movement needs to get past that point. Like it's quite new to the sort of terms of mental health. And I think that because of that, it sort of brought a lot of people together who are feeling that. And then you get quite angry and you get sad and quite panicked and that's fine. It, you need to, you need to acknowledge your feelings. Like I'm not saying compress those at all, but I definitely think that the next sort of phase of that is to think positive, like productively, mm -hmm. not positively. It's kind of hard when you're anxious, sure. or, you know, we both know that. And I think that, but it is about like, okay, how do I move forward from here? And mm -hmm. how can I take this with me, acknowledge it? And it's going to be a part of me and I'm okay with that, but I'll move forward. The reason I speak, about that so you know in a way which i'm not saying i'm not sat here being like you know i totally understand why everyone feels climate anxiety mm -hmm. because i've grown up with bpd and mm -hmm. and sort of adhd and i think that because of that you learn to sort of have an opinion on mental health mm -hmm. and i think that for me growing up with that and it really sort of you know i didn't really know what that was during my teenage years um when i was swimming like i said and when i got injured it created quite a like, toxic culture around that and that uh, i didn't react well to that at mm. all i didn't i thought it was just because of you know the situation i was going through but probably overreacting quite a lot and no one really understood why i know my parents definitely didn't and uh 
then sort of coming out of that and going to uni and and getting some help from sort of therapists and counselors and stuff like you start to understand why you're feeling a certain way mm. um and then you learn how you can use that to either be a benefit to you or you know or you can let it sort of drag you down mm. um and i'm not saying it's easy to get to the former of those um it took definitely takes me a long time it's a lifelong journey yeah and in my and experience adhd oh of course yeah. and with my experience with adhd and thank you for sharing that time um it's you know, just when you think you figured it out, the next one comes along and it's like, oh, okay, my system for making my brain fit in this box, which has sort of been working, no longer works for me. Yeah. So it's a constant journey of rediscovery on that part, totally. And I think uh, as we learn more and more science comes out around it, and uh, I think it's a really interesting moment uh, within neuroscience where there is so much uh, educational content coming out of uh, well, pretty much everywhere right now, which I think is helping people with neurodiversity understand their brains better, mm -hmm. certainly for myself. But I, so ADHD, get it. Tell me about BPD because I don't really know about it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's still quite new. <laughs> um, I remember I got diagnosed when I was like 18, 19, and it was something that they were, I think, I think literally think my, my sort of psychotherapist at the time was like, so this is like a new thing that we're still getting research on. So you've always been an early adopter, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, this doesn't make me feel like super confident about what you're diagnosing me with. Sure. Um, but, it, you know, there was lots of sort of new research happening around it. And we were talking about the fact that, you know, you've got personality disorders across the spectrum. And most people, when they think of that, think like disassociation, mm. and like think about like split personality disorder and, you know, schizophrenia and all of these things. And they're all on that spectrum. Borderline personality disorder has like different uh, sort of uh, features within that. So mm -hmm. mine is sort of technically within sort of emotional instability. Mm -hmm. Like that's supposedly what it what it sort of fits into the category if you want to try and categorize the brain. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and right at the beginning of that journey, when they first diagnosed and we went through sort of group therapy with it and then individual counseling, a lot of that conversation was just around like different emotions. So I think that often with a lot of mental health um there's a label for it but generally what it comes down to is like how you're managing mm -hmm. your emotions essentially even with adhd it's hard to concentrate on things like you're pretty scatty like i find it like i'm either super focused or i'm like completely apathetic to the thing i'm working for on sure. and those are like very similar to like bpd right like in fact most people who have bpd have like high triggers of autism and yeah. adhd and like lots of other things well, well this is it i i really i don't see them as a, a spectrum i see it as a venn diagram yeah, with sure. lots of overlap between various things and some of the symptoms of bipolar similar to adhd yeah. and like yeah. there is so much um you know overlap between them but that's yeah. why it's so difficult to categorize and i also i mean i know that there are um you know structural parts of the neurodiverse brain mm -hmm. which are different but i also wonder how much uh different chemical interplay also uh creates you know temporary changes in the yeah. way in the way the brain functions and can look like other things as well yeah and, and, and i think look you know we're we're all human and human have speak humans, for yourself no, <laughs> you're gonna like pull off the skin now yeah, some exactly. man's gonna come <laughs> <laughs> um but we all have emotions we're idiosyncratic we you know we have triggers and that's completely normal and i think that it's very easy for us to see normality as not having those any of those things and i think that's where we've got it wrong generally over mm. the last few you know decades of sort of mental health and research and like being public about it so the big thing for me is when i'm talking about my mental health is like 
these things, of course, like are more extreme for me. Sure, like I feel these fluctuations possibly more than the the, the sort of average person. But everyone feels those fluctuations mm. still. We're all triggered by certain things. We all experience, you know, down moments and up moments. And the difference is, is just that mine fluctuate quite rapidly. Yes, and I think that when you put it like that, you realise that everyone sort of experiences quite a lot of similar things and then it's much easier to relate to people who are going through those things so you know, my partner has you know anxiety and she you know has panic attacks and stuff but whilst I'm not having panic attacks I can understand the feelings that she's experiencing mm. because as a human but also as a human experiences high level of emotions like it all crosses over yeah like your Venn diagram example and yeah. I think that then it's you what you do is you you're ending up creating a much more communal effort of supporting each other through mm. it. and this is what's really important with mental health is that we don't go down like this isolationist siloed off like oh you haven't got adhd so you don't understand what i'm going through or you haven't got bpd so you uh, actually no fuck that you've got whatever yeah it doesn't really matter yes because there's probably uh, a thousand things which are pre-definitional right now which yeah. everyone has probably the idea of a neurotypical brain is bullshit yeah. <laughs> you know what is a neurotypical <laughs> who, who is that exactly who <laughs> show is me that? them please yeah um, yeah exactly and i think that that really is how we not only move forward and like talk about it more as people but also like support each other and just like use those as like strengths in a lot of ways um and and support when they become a bit overwhelming mm, okay really interesting so one of the things that i have found to be um one of the best tools in managing uh my neurodiversity has been meditation mm -hmm. uh been meditating um pretty much every day since 2016 but i really feel like over the last six months that my practice has really improved a lot on that side of things I want to talk to you about spirituality and religion as well, because I, 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 the older I get, the grand old age of 31 right now, but the older I get, I really do start having a more of an appreciation of mind, body and soul. Yeah. I think I spent the first 26 years of my life just with mind um, and then body and, and more recently, you know, soul and that side of things. Mm -hmm. And you've obviously got a really interesting journey on, on that side. I would love to, to learn more about, you know, your conversion to Islam and, and, and that yeah. journey. Yeah. I think that thanks. And um, really interesting to sort of hear that journey of sort of like, you, th you know, as a person growing up into your young adulthood, you're super focused on like, like driven by your mind. And then you like start thinking, well, I need my body to be healthy, to have a healthy mind. And then you've kind of coming into that full circle moment of, oh, actually, this is all part of this, like, inner self, which needs to be looked after as mm. well. And there are multiple ways of doing that. Um, I think it's really, yeah, I, I'm always interested in my own journey because I was born into a family which were, I wouldn't say that spiritual, but were, like, agnostic to, like, the idea of there being more. Um, but my mum's side of the family, her, her parents are, like, really hardcore Catholic. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting because they never pressed that on us, but we were seeing it quite a lot. And it was something that I grew up thinking, I don't, I don't really believe, I don't think in, in this, like I was pretty driven by like science and like, I'm, I, you know, I, I can explain everything on this and, you know, classic kid who thinks they know everything. And I think that the more I, again, as I went through my teenage years and met more people and learned more and ex experienced mental health issues and all of this stuff, I slowly started a transition of like not necessarily believing in more but just realizing that there's more than just like this mind you know it, it, you're one self and mm -hmm. like it's all part of this big uh sort of amalgamation of of feeling and and uh, awareness and like control and all of this stuff and i think that around the age of like probably like 19 20 i started getting into meditation 
And this was also in turn of moving out of swimming and going to university and started surfing, big community around meditation and surf community. Like they're very closely linked with yoga and all of this stuff. And I think like, look, it's easy as a you know, another white man who got into yoga in his 20s. But um, it, it was something that really sort of helped me, to be honest, manage my mental health, like just taking a step back, letting everything wash over you, mm. finding a sort of peace um, but but alongside that journey, I was speaking to people who were religious um, and predominantly speaking to Muslims. And I went to Morocco when I was 18 and I remember the Adhan, the call to prayer, and I was just like stunned by the overwhelming sense of emotion when mm. I heard the call to prayer every morning when I was there, you know, and five times through the day. And it was just like... At the time, as an 18-year-old, I was like, ah, this is just like the novelty of being in another country. Like, I'd never been to Northern Africa, and it was like, you know, amazing. And But it, definitely this super strong feeling inside of me. And then left sort of Morocco and carried on that journey of sort of like experimenting with like meditation. And I think also bear in mind that this sort of tied in with like mindfulness, with mm -hmm. like managing BPD, which, mm -hmm. you know, we're sort of taught to do with like through group therapy and stuff anyway. So it all sort of, sort of tied together. And then I ended up going to Morocco again. And I'd completely forgotten about the initial experience that I'd had with mm. that call to prayer. And I went to Morocco again, and this time to a really small surf-like town um, on, on the uh, West Coast called Tagazout. And I was with one of my friends, Yakub, uh, who's, who's Muslim. And he was praying. And the call to prayer happened as well, like around, you know, before he was praying, of course. But, um, and... Like the same feeling like exactly the same and it just like brought so much emotion to me and so much awareness of like how I was feeling and this peace like it's just like super like almost like a pool right like I can't I can't explain it in any other way other than like, it was like a pool towards something and it's quite emotional and it, yeah it was just very overpowering and after that I was just like reading a lot quite mm -hmm. privately like I don't think many people knew that I was learning like sort of in private about Islam and just like talking to lots of people as well and um, I wasn't really practicing at all but I was just interested and then about two and a half years ago sort of reconnected with Yakub and uh, had another friend called Azad from Malaysia um, I met my partner who um, is Malaysian as well and lots of like conversation about Islam mm. and then uh, yeah um, Azad invited me to the mosque for uh, during Eid um, and, uh, and actually before Eid, during Ramadan, I practiced Ramadan for the first time and I wasn't really practicing Islam, mm. but I went every day to the mosque. I fasted every day and, you know, people were like, you don't have to do this every day. You're not Muslim. And it's like, yeah, but I want I want to, like something is yeah. telling me I need to. It was that calling inside. Absolutely. And mm. again, every time the, the call to prayer and just like, yeah, just like ever ending sort of drive and like surge of emotion and pull towards this thing and yeah ended up with me uh taking my shahada which is my sort of dedication to islam mm -hmm. and um that was uh, two years ago and two years ago yeah and um ever since then just been practicing islam and it's been a, a truly truly life-changing mm. experience like i cannot explain enough how through meditation it was all good and i was trying to understand like managing my emotions but like pinpointing this like eternal peace essentially is the way I would describe it of like a comfort of knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like there and knows and has a plan and whatever you do is your choice and mm -hmm. you're driven to change what you do but 
if something doesn't work out the way you expect it to, it's because it wasn't planned for you. Mm. And there's something better later down the line. That makes everything so much easier to manage mm. as like a founder, as someone who's driven, as someone who suffers with mental health, as, you know, it's all of these things. And suddenly it, I understood like how I was meant to manage those things and and why I was meant to manage those mm. things in, in a certain way. So yeah, it's been a truly enlightening journey, but also an incredibly helpful one as well. Yeah, really helpful. Wow. So it's um, it's something which clearly, you know, it doesn't exist uh, alone within your life. It's integrated with with every part of the way that you see things and, and are able to um, cope with day to day, which is amazing. If it's um, I, I'm really fascinated by um, that feeling, that initial feeling you had that call at that time. Did you know much about the religion or was it just something at a more molecular level? I think probably the latter, like it was more of a feeling, more just like my whole body sort mm. of understanding something suddenly, whatever that something was. I think we live in a country which has a very stereotypical opinion of what Islam is. Um, and it's it's outrageous and pretty abominable <laughs> the way that we uh, view that culture and that religion. And I've grown up around that. Mm. I grew up in a very white rural area of England um, where... I went to a Church of England school and we learned about other religions, but it was like, this is the symbol of Islam. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, and I went to uni and I like took a module of Arabic and you learn a bit about the culture there. And that was taught by an amazing um, Middle Eastern lady. And, you know, that was better because mm -hmm. then you start to get a bit more of culture from that, from someone else's perspective who has grown up as Muslim, who uh, hasn't grown up in a country which is sort of you know, bombarding you with like anti-Islam propaganda, mm. like all the time. And I think that I, yeah, I, so, so I think that it was probably more molecu molecular um, at that initial point rather than sort of knowing lots about Islam and thinking, oh yeah, that, that makes a lot mm. of sense. But then, as I say, like, as I was reading more through that journey, it just, so much more of it made sense. I, and the biggest part of that is like distinguishing what is cultural and what is religious mm -hmm. so you know when people talk about like the hijab or they talk about uh people the way they eat or wh whatever it is mm -hmm. uh, you know there's so many confusions between cultural and political ideology right right and the religion itself and what the quran actually says yeah and i think that that's very interesting for me as someone who hasn't grown up around islam mm. to come in at it and i'm just reading the quran right mm. like i'm following what allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down and what muhammad peace be upon him wrote into the quran and it's like well suddenly I'm reading this at like, it's like rawest. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah I've yeah. got no political opinion on sure. this because I haven't grown up in a Muslim country. So then when, so for example, a really good example of this is just after I took my um, Shahada um, or following my Shahada, um, it was coming up to the Qatar uh, World Cup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And obviously there was so much like about the human rights and yes. sort of all of this like issues. And a lot of the media and a lot of the conversation around that was how Islam doesn't treat people well, how, you know, if you're not Muslim, like, forget it, you know, and get to live it. And uh, it was just complete and utter bull bullshit, right? Mm. Like, it was about the political ideology of Qatar. Yeah. And it was not about uh, about the religion itself. There are crossovers, right? We're not denying that. Sure. But it was, like, super interesting because I was asked to be part of a non-governmental campaign about Islam in Qatar. Mm -hmm. And I was on like billboards talking about environmentalism in the Quran no and way. stuff. And <laughs> it was just very interesting to me because this was a 
targeted campaign that was set up by organizations to try and educate about what Islam is versus what the political mm. culture mm. is in those countries. And um, I found it just very helpful to split those things, mm. like church and state, right? Like, yeah, yeah. splitting the two. Well, this is the thing. I think, with, you know, the nature of humanity is whenever you have structures that could lend themselves to some sort of hierarchy, some people are always going to utilize them in that way, right? There's human nature to want to, for some people to want to control things or other yep. people. and. You, you know, you don't need religion for that. You can use anything for those things. Um, and it was when I was studying, it was the, the fig leaf of grievance, right? You can turn anything into a doctrine for your own, mm -hmm. you know, human negative purposes, yeah. or you can use it in, in a positive way. Yeah. So I think, you know, anyone who can't see that any set of rules, any code can be um, implemented negatively or positively are just, you know, missing the reality Absolutely. of humanity, right? I also just think like, you know, we don't look at, the crap that's happening in UK government or, or American politics, and we go, God damn all Christians. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. We don't do that because mm. that's not true. Like We don't make that connection. We just, they're split things. So why do we look at Middle Eastern countries or Southeast Asian countries and we go, oh, that's terrible Islam. Mm. I was like, why? Like what? They're, they're, they're different things. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The dominant religion is Islam in those places, but it doesn't mean that the politics is Islam. Yeah. It means the politics is culture. Yeah. <laughs> so. And and I think um, I, I want to get your view on this. Um, the more that, and it's so difficult to tell, right? Because we all live in our echo chambers, right? I don't interact with enough people in reality <laughs> to actually understand what's going on. In reality, <laughs> if reality is even real uh, or a thing, but from what I see on my personal feed right which is therefore uh, a clear accurate representation of what everyone else sees you know at least there i think there is more of an understanding that there is that very clear separation between you know governmental actors and we can we need we don't uh, we need to look no further than what's going on in our own government to understand that what people are doing at that level often 99% of the time as in does not reflect my opinion as a citizen of the yeah. united kingdom yeah exactly absolutely like you know the government particularly in voted in governments um don't represent the majority a lot of the time mm. right like in fact this government got in on like 20 percent yeah. of the vote <laughs> yeah so it's like and, and that was not this prime minister yeah <laughs> this was like a completely different prime minister like however many that was ago <laughs> so i think like we have to just take a step back and go okay we understand that our political system doesn't represent the majority but it's done in a way which is meant to represent like enough of it um so therefore we can't look at other political systems and go oh that must be the opinion of all people who live exactly in like come on like, yeah yeah <laughs> if only it was that simple right? i wish it was that simple because then it'd be easier to sort of make exactly. changes right but yeah. we can't do that so yeah exactly that all right cool few questions i want to ask you that i ask yeah. everyone um what's the single biggest risk you've taken and what was the outcome I think the biggest risk I've taken was leaving Greenpeace and setting up my first company. Um, I had very little savings. I come from a pretty poor family at the time after the financial crash just like decimated everything. So it was like, I am purely responsible for how this goes. And it was fine. And then the pandemic came and it was like, just got rid of that. So it was like, the biggest risk was just going, I'm going to take the jump. And I truly believe that I can make the change and it's going to be successful. Amazing. And it's been uh, really exciting to see the journey so far and excited to see, you know, where, where it goes from here. But I know that when you, you know, when you find your purpose, it's very, very different. I don't think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, 
I think, impossible to give up on your purpose when you've discovered it. Yeah. Um, whether Canopy, you know, changes and adjusts, and of course it will, because every business does, right? Um, but when you're that purpose-driven and, and assuming your team, and, and that's why you have such an amazing opportunity to find other mission-driven people, I think there's no way that risk uh, won't pay off. Yeah, no, thank, I appreciate that. And I, and I think that particularly when it's like mission-driven as mm-hmm. well, like, you know, there's a lot of people with purpose. There's a lot of people with, like, an idea and, like, they're really driven by that idea, um, which is fine. And, like, we need that because otherwise, as I say, we wouldn't get more convenient lifestyle sure. if not. Um, but, like, when you're, like, trying to solve, like, a really fundamental problem, like, whether it's climate crisis, human rights, like, network, you know, whatever it is, like, helping people connect, whatever it is, it's, like, you are solving something so inherent to us as humans that you are going to solve it right mm. like whatever you do it yeah. doesn't it canopy let's say changes fails whatever like i will still be here working on solving this problem mm. in some way or form mm-hmm. uh however i'm uh damn confident it's going to be canopy nice so, love yeah. that okay good <laughs> anything that you wish you'd done differently yeah there's a couple of things i think that right at the beginning so obviously with with my first company, I think that I would have just been more willing to speak to people about it before I sort of just go with it. Um, I think we, first time founder problems, right? Yeah, right. And and also just like there's just this like real weird stereotype that if you talk about your like your idea, that someone's going to steal it. And like I've never seen that happen. Yeah. And in fact, most people are just like I would rather give you advice than try and do this myself. And if they and I always think if they are going to steal it and they do it successfully, like good for them. Hundred like, percent. They're the ones to do it. I, right? I, I mean, it's it's only a founder mentality which yeah. has that I my idea is so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that this person is going to drop their lives yeah, yeah, yeah. and do what I was going to do because that's so. how brilliant my yeah, idea yeah. is. I haven't executed anything yet, yeah, yeah. but just those words are so fantastic. <laughs> this person is dropping their life to yeah, do what I was going to do. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah, so I think that would be sort of the first thing was just like, yeah, just speak to more people. Don't be afraid. Like, don't be afraid to change that as well. You know, work on that feedback. Um, I think the second thing is just like, take more, take a little bit more time before before starting it sounds so ridiculous because all the advice is to like get going get feedback and get something out there and iterate on it and and i absolutely agree once you start but it's that period before you start which people don't talk about and Mm. i think that actually there's no harm in staying in your job taking a couple of months more and like working out why and what you're doing before you take the jump and start doing it just because like it's more likely that your startup or whatever you're going to do whether it's a startup or an organization it's more likely that that's going to be successful if you are really damn sure about like the why like Mm. the why you're going to do that Mm. um and and that might include understanding sort of the feedback from people as well Mm. right like it might even be a part of that but i just think that before you start building, before you start sort of like trying to get something out into market and trying to get feedback on it, just take a minute, take a breather. Um, and I think we, you know, I, I, I think I inevitably always wish that I take more time, but you know, um, yeah, I think that's the thing. Finding your why. It's great. It's a great yeah. answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are you proudest of? <sighs> that's a good question. <laughs> I think, look, uh, there's, it's really hard to be proud of yourself. Like sometimes, um, I'm going to be quite honest there. Like you, your biggest critic as a founder so you see all the things that you've done and you go i could have done it better um and i think that's just inevitable but i think the biggest thing that i'm sort of proudest of is two things again um one is a really 
like really menial thing but like raising money when everything was incredibly hard to raise money it's not easy man and we had like no product out on market we had like no traction like well we had like customers like ready to go we had built businesses ready to go but we had no like revenue or like actual proof of sale or anything and we managed to close around and yeah that that was like incredibly validating for me um i think other the other thing is just like being sure that we're solving a real problem um, I'm proud that we're not just building something for the sake of building it. I'm mm-hmm. proud that we're building something which will actually help millions of people if we get it right. Um, and, and that means so much to me mm-hmm. coming from my career and everything that I've done. It's like, I know that I'm doing everything I can to not only solve a problem, but also to just help like so many people change their lives. And that's going to be incredibly validating if it works. So I'm proud that we're at least doing that. <laughs> nice. No, I love it. It's yeah. a great answer. Um, okay, my second to last question for you is, what does it take to be successful? I don't think I can call myself successful yet. It's an open question, whatever that question means to you. Um, everyone would usually say it's being comfortable. I think it's like, you know, most people would say that, oh, I'm successful if I've left an impact, like I've left a legacy, I've made money, whatever it is. For me, like being successful is um, being confident that my journey is already laid out for me by mm. Allah, so I and i think that therefore it's like success for me is just making sure that i stay the path and Mm. like trust that uh you know that's success for me if i get to the end of my life and i go i didn't doubt or i if i did doubt i came back from that doubt and didn't leave it Mm -hmm. that's success because that is what i'm meant to do as a muslim and also what i fundamentally believe we should do uh, uh as muslims Nice. It's a great answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My last one for you is 15-year-old Tom walks in the room right now. What are you going to tell him? Get the fuck out, dude. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a podcast. What are you doing? Um, no, I, um, I would say get off your high horse. Don't be so arrogant. Um, you are going to experience a lot of changes over the next decade. And nothing is going to work out like you think it's going to work out. So instead of going to school tomorrow and going in there and, you know, thinking you're the king and you're the best swimmer in, you know, the country, which you may be at 15, good on you. (laughs) Uh, But just like, yeah, take a step, man. And yeah, look at the wider world. That's funny because I think you've done a good job then clearly because sitting here with you now, I to hear that you were arrogant 15 year old i'm very surprised so um congrats man on the journey yeah i don't know maybe you should speak to someone else (laughs) maybe not we'll just you know ignorance is bliss and i'll uh, just imagine you yeah exactly yeah i think look you know arrogance uh, it's hard like when you do a sport at that level and you that's separate from school right like i was going away every morning and evening to train Mm. and then compete at the weekends and coming into school and no one understood that yeah yeah. like so when people particularly with swimming where it's not football so people aren't like well you're a really good footballer Mm -hmm. they're like oh you're gay whatever that Mm -hmm. means because you wear speedos and you swim Mm -hmm. and it's like i felt like this need to give off this like big bravazo like i'm the best at what i do so fuck anyone who says anything else mm. so i don't know like if it was like intentional arrogance but yeah, it definitely yeah. came across as arrogance so i would just say to you know 15 year old thomas like just ignore them like take a step back you don't need to prove yourself like just keep going like things will things will work out that's great advice that's great advice okay what do you want to plug 
canopy.com you know we're live uh, or beta live so come and tell us uh, what's wrong and we'll fix it <laughs> um but also just like i think the the biggest thing i would plug is keep supporting mission-driven brands um any of them it doesn't matter whether it's energy food and drink you know cosmetics i don't care um just find one support it be loyal about them shout about them whether it's canopy or any of the brands we work with on canopy um that's going to make the biggest difference for our sector love that tom thank you so much for coming on the show cheers Roy. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.